Greetings and salutations. What's up, everybody? E. Spencer Kite, Sunday, August 6th, episode 39 of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura, presented to you by One Bone, looking back at UFC Nashville, which took place yesterday evening at Bridgestone Arena in Music City, USA. Let's run through the results, and then we'll get into the talking points, the areas of discussion, the actual Next Day Takeaways. In the main event, Corey Sandhagen wins a unanimous decision over Rob Font, 50-45 across the board. Co-main event, Tatiana Suarez submits Jessica Andrade. Second round guillotine choke, 1 minute 31 seconds into the middle stanza. Light heavyweight fight, Dustin Jacoby, TKO win over Kennedy and Zechiku, 1 minute 22 seconds into the fight. Featherweights, Diego Lopez submits Gavin Tucker with a armbar from a triangle position as well. One minute, 38 seconds into the opening round. Back to light heavyweight, Tanner Boser defeats Alexa Kamer by unanimous decision. 30-27 across the board. Lightweight fight, Ludovic Klein defeats Ignacio Bahamundes by unanimous decision. 30-27 and 29-28 twice. On to the prelims, Kyler Phillips defeats Haoni Barcelos in a bantamweight fight. 30-27, 29-28 and 29-28 for the Matrix. Welterweight bout Carlston Harris with a come-from-behind technical submission win over Jeremiah Wells, putting him to sleep at 1 minute 50 seconds of the third round with an anaconda choke. Featherweight matchup Billy Quarantillo defeats Damon Jackson 29-28 across the board for Billy Q. Flyweights Cody Durden defeats Jake Hadley 30-27s across the board. I'll get to that one in a bit because that's a that's a weird score to me. Catchweight bout between featherweights. Sean Woodson defeats Dennis Bazookia. 30-27 across the board there for the St. Louis native. And in the opener, Asu Almabayev makes an impressive debut at flyweight, defeating Ode Osborne by submission in the second round. Three minutes, 11 seconds in. Rear naked choke victory for the new fighter from Kazakhstan who moves to 18-2 and two with the victory. So a lot of people didn't like this main event. They didn't like that Corey Sandhagen came out and wrestled, came out and showed a different side of his game, came out and took the path of least resistance against Rob Font, taking him to the ground, going 7-for-7 seven seven with his takedowns, putting Font on his back each and every round, keeping him there for long stretches, and grinding out essentially a unanimous decision win. I want to preface everything I am about to say with this. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. Not everyone has to like every fight the same. Not everyone has to feel the same way about results, matchups, anything like that. This is a subjective endeavor. You're free to like and appreciate and have whatever feelings you want about whatever matchup and end result that you choose to. I understand the folks pushing back saying, hey, if you had paid X amount and this is how the main event played out, you too would be pissed. I hear you, but here's my thing. So five out of the 12 fights on the card were finishes, including each of the three leading into the main event. Of these seven fights, on the card on Saturday that went to the decision, I would argue that four of those seven were competitive, entertaining fights, which means that to my, to my logic, to my estimation, nine out of the 12 fights were above and above average in regards to excitement. We either got a finish or we got a competitive back and forth for 15 minutes which is sort of what we're looking for in this, at least to my understanding. And so that means that 75% of the card was above average or better. And to me, that's a pretty good number. Now I get what people are saying. Again, I understand the argument and I understand that my position is certainly different as somebody that is watching at home and hasn't paid hundreds of dollars to go and watch this event whether it's you're from the Nashville area and it's the first time you're back being able to watch this um, live in your area for the first time in four years, or you're somebody that traveled in and has the extra expense of 
flying in and hotels and all of that stuff. I get it. On paper, Corey Sanhagen and Rob Font is a crackerjack of a fight. We all sort of expected it to be a striking battle, myself included. I thought this would be a a chess match of sorts. I thought Sanhagen would certainly mix in the wrestling, as he did, but I didn't think it would be such a prominent piece of this approach. Where I take a little bit of umbrage and where I get a little bit frustrated and disheartened, as I said yesterday, in about Saturday's action and and on Twitter as well, is when folks that are covering this sport and covering this event and understand all the mechanics of this, just, just pile on and don't want to add any of the, add any of the nuance and the context to this stuff. So Corey Sanhagen wasn't supposed to fight. Rob Font. He was supposed to face Umar Nurmagomedov, who is a 180 in terms of style from who Rob Font is. To me, this performance was an absolute domination from Corey Sanhagen in showing a different side of his game, a development and improvement in his game that has really taken place over the last couple of years since he lost those fights to TJ Dillashaw and Pyotr Jan, which for me, is a thing that we want to see, especially from high-end fighters. There didn't seem to be a lot of pushback against Rob Font for his inability to get any offense going, to get back up from the ground, to to do any of that stuff. And then we also learn from Corey Sanhagen himself in his post-fight interview that he came into the fight with some elbow issues, thought about pulling out, stayed on the card so that the, the main event didn't fall through. And then felt a pop, he said, in his arm, believing it might be a triceps injury in that first round. And so wasn't able to do things the way he wanted to do them. And so to me, I I would like to see, what I would like to see is more people in the media reminding folks of the short notice nature of this fight. Reminding folks of the change in opponents. That this is Corey Sanhagen still going out and beating a top 10 opponent on short notice, in dominant fashion. And yes, it's not the fashion that people expected. It's not the manner that we anticipated. And for many, many people, it is not the style of fight that they enjoy and that they want to see, especially from these two guys that don't profile as wrestlers. I get all of that. But there's the Corey Sandhagen side of this. And it feels to me like in these instances... We sort of pick and choose and we change up which element means the most to us. And that's the part that I I get confused and frustrated with. Because it seems to change with every fight what thing it is that fans and media are looking for the most. And what piece of this takes priority in terms of what these men and women are supposed to do inside the octagon. So just about every week, we rightfully talk about fighter pay and how the pay from the UFC, the pay packets that these individuals get are not enough, how the win and show situation, the one one paycheck to show up and another if you win is archaic and outdated and needs to be removed and everybody needs to be paid more. But then when Corey Sanhagen goes out and makes sure that he gets both halves of those paychecks, each of those two paychecks, well, he shouldn't go out and do that because I wanted a more entertaining fight. I read a lot of an entertaining loss is better than a boring win in the UFC comments last night after this performance. And while we've seen some instances of that being true, I would also say that a lot of the people saying that sure don't seem to give much of a shit about fighters that end up on the wrong side of entertaining losses repeatedly or regularly up at that top end. Rob Font is a pretty good case in point. He's been in some pretty damn entertaining fights. And prior to him knocking out Adrian Yanez earlier this year, a whole lot of people got off the bandwagon. So don't, so, so you can miss me with the entertaining losses are better than boring wins. Cause at the end of the day, we're still talking about wins, except we're not at times 
because just winning fights doesn't seem to be enough, right? Winning fights, Bilal Muhammad winning nine consecutive fights, Arnold Allen winning nine consecutive fights, 10 consecutive fights. Those aren't good enough to get into a championship mix. Then we need more exciting fights and we need more exciting personalities and we need something else that attracts people. And for me, it feels like the arguments change every single week based on the situation. And I know somebody is going to hear this and push back and say, of course they do because every situation is different. And that is true and valid and correct, but it's also problematic to me because every situation is going to present some reason and some area where someone can be aggrieved and someone can demand more. And it feels to me like we are in a space and in a time right now where a whole lot of UFC fans and a whole lot of UFC media just want more. My wife and I talk pretty regularly about this concept, this idea that we have sort of of 80, 20, 90, 10, where 90% of a situation or 80% of a situation and interaction can go well. And people, ourselves, others in our life tend to focus on the 10 to 20% that doesn't go well. It's sort of the can't see the forest for the trees idea, but it, it seems like that's where we're at with MMA events and with MMA fights and and specific for me to this event yesterday. As I said, we had five out of 12 fights and inside the distance, including the three leading up to the main event. We had a first round submission from Diego Lopez, a beautiful finish. We had a first round knockout from Dustin Jacoby, a clean straight right hand down the pipe. We had Tatiana Suarez dominate Jessica Andrade, get a second round submission win to arguably punch her ticket to a championship opportunity on a night where, as I said earlier, nine out of 12 fights felt like they were above average in terms of the level of excitement. But then we get a main event that isn't as exciting as people want. And that's the thing that is taking precedence. That's the thing that drowns out everything else. And if the argument is this is the most important fight, and of course it trumps everything else, then I think we're kind of fucked. I, I just think we're kind of screwed going forward because if the only thing we're going to judge these events by, or the main thing we're going to judge these events by is how the main event turns out, regardless of anything else before it, that's a tough grading system. That's going to make for a real difficult time giving these fights, giving these athletes and these performances, the credit they're due. If we're going to look at Nashville and say, you know, there were some good fights, but it just wasn't a good card because the main event didn't work out the way I wanted it to for a multitude of reasons, none of which anybody seems to give a shit about, that we're just going to have a hard time with this going forward. It's going to be real difficult to clear that bar. And that's what it feels like to me right now is that we're continually elevating the bar and raising the stakes of what we want, what we expect, what we deem good enough, what we deem acceptable from these men and women, from the UFC, from the promotion. And the thing that makes it extra difficult for me on a night like last night is that all kinds of people were absolutely enthralled by Jake Paul, Nathan Diaz, and the undercard of that fight. There was more attention, and I talked about this a little bit during the week, there was more attention paid to some of the former UFC fighters boxing on that card, primarily Chris Avila and Jeremy Stevens, than there were athletes on this fight card. Tatiana Suarez most likely punched her ticket to a championship opportunity with that win, and there was more coverage of Chris Avila and Jeremy Stevens from mainstream marquee MMA outlets than there were, than there was, excuse me, of Tatiana Suarez. Now I get that everybody's got bosses. Everybody's got traffic to generate. Everybody's got clicks to grab. And if you're not doing it, somebody else is. And if you're not getting those eyes, somebody else is. But it's where that happens. And then there's the criticism of, this card wasn't good enough. We don't know these people. Why is this person getting that? 
that's where it all comes together and feels like we're just, it feels right now to me like MMA and the UFC specifically is Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill and it's just never going to get close. And it's just a constant battle to deliver and deliver and deliver. And the hill keeps getting bigger and the boulder keeps getting heavier. And these poor bastards just are never going to win. And as somebody that speaks to these men and women on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, and knows what goes into it and hears all of the criticisms fired at the UFC on behalf of the athletes, to then have a week like this and a night like this where we turn around and very little attention is paid to the athletes by the people that are often shouting about caring for the athletes above all else because there's some circus act going on with a guy that everybody loves in Nathan Diaz and the problem child, Jake Paul, it's hard for me to take. And again, as always, nobody has to agree with me. I don't need anybody jumping on board and saying, Hey, you're right, man. This isn't why I come on here. This is, I mean, this is why I have a platform of my own. I can just say what I want and I don't care if you agree with me or not. But from my perspective, from my vantage point, Seeing a quality card like this, where we got several performances that are going to be meaningful, impactful performances going forward. They're going to carry people into championship opportunities, into top 15 opportunities, into elevated positions going forward that a whole lot of people that weren't paying attention are going to say, how did this guy get here? I don't know who these people are. That's frustrating to me. That's hard for me to take as somebody that pays attention each and every day, every single week, every single fight on every single card. And for my contemporaries in this space, few of them to turn around and acknowledge the circumstance of that main event, the circumstance of Corey Sandhagen switching opponents, and showing growth, development, improvement, taking the path of least resistance. Like, it seems to be real easy for everybody else to say, go out there and get into a fist fight. And then when he doesn't get his show money, when he doesn't get, excuse me, his win money, because he loses an entertaining fist fight, it's, well, screw the UFC. But if he goes out and makes sure he gets that win money, it's screw Corey Sanhagen. So do you care about him getting his money? Or do you care about your entertainment? What's the order of things here? I've asked this before and I ask it again. I just need somebody to provide me with a hierarchy of the things everybody cares about and is looking for from these matchups so that I understand going in and can just work my way through it with each fight to know what the outrage is going to be, to be, to understand what the frustration and disappointment and gripes are going to be because if it's fighter pay and it's, we want everybody to get the most money they can, then Corey Sanhagen went out and got the most money he can. And I don't want to hear it. If it's, you want entertaining fights, then I don't want to hear about athletes records and results and anything like that. I just want you to sit back and get entertaining fights. And that's all that matters. But if you want the right people, to get championship opportunities, then we got to care about wins and losses, even if they are frustrating for you, 5045 wrestle fests. I just need some kind of breakdown. I need some kind of understanding of what the, the rankings are, what the hierarchy of complaints are, because it seems like it switches every single card, every single event, every single fight sometimes. And it's getting real goddamn tiring watching a really good performance like this, watching a top five fighter show big improvements and legitimate growth and great decision-making, go out there and beat another top 10 opponent, get his third straight win, put himself in the championship conversation and have a whole lot of people from about the third round on going, yeah, this is terrible. Who cares? Just feels weird. Move to the co-main event, and I don't want to take anything away from Tatiana Suarez's performance because great effort, great performance, 
looked good, wrapped up a second consecutive second round guillotine choke finish to put herself for me in that championship position, in that number one contender position. The thing I'm interested in, and I'm going to try to make this happen, is I want to talk to Jessica Andrade again, because this is now three straight losses. And while I'm not someone to overreact to a veteran and a top 10 fighter, top five fighter, losing to other top five fighters, and that's who it's been so far. Aaron Blanchfield, Yan Zhao Nan, Tatiana Suarez, all elite talents. So it's hard to put too much, too much dread into what is happening for Jessica Andrade. I also feel like there's something here. This isn't just losing two better opponents. She doesn't seem like the same fighter, even that we saw at the start of the year against Lauren Murphy. I don't know what it is. I asked her about some of this during the week when I spoke to her for the story that went up on UFC.com. We addressed some of it. She talked about being surrounded by the right people and making the right decisions and choices in the fight. And look, this could simply just be that Tatiana Suarez is that much better than Jessica Andrade right now, as is Aaron Blanchfield and Yan Nan. You could say, I just made a tactical mistake. I got caught. So maybe next time out, she writes the ship and it's all good. And this ends up being similar to, and I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody very recently that had lost to, I think it was Tisha Torres at one point in this division, had lost to all the champions and contenders, right? Everybody that she lost to, she was on this run where she had struggled and struggled and struggled and people thought she was just done and we didn't look at and recognize that it was just facing great opposition. The next one is now the most important one for Jessica Andrade and it needs to be a step back in competition. Personally, I would like to see it come at the earliest in December, but more likely more more favorably next year, take some time to, to reset and regroup rather than hustling back in. This was a short notice opportunity where she stepped up, the UFC called, she answered, and I commend her for that. But it was a bad choice, right? Last week, we saw Miranda Maverick make a good choice on short notice, step in and face Priscilla Cashuera. This was a bad decision for Jessica Andrade on a two-fight losing streak to go in there and have it extended to three. So I want to see where she goes from here and what decisions she and her team and her management team make about the next fight. Cause it's vitally important. Good win for Dustin Jacoby. Kennedy and Zechiku feels like he's, he's hit that point. And I talked about this in about Saturday's action where this is just who he is. And that's fine. He and Jacoby kind of live in that lower third, just outside of the top 15 the frustrating or, or the challenging thing about that is that it leaves light heavyweight lacking new names, which is the thing that, that sort of plagues the division. And as we get going forward and as we get down to the matchmaking portion of things, I will talk about a few opportunities and, and matchups that I like that come from that position of let's get new things happening. This is a good win for Dustin Jacoby. I hope he gets the opportunity to fight forward as he requested, having fought backwards the last couple of fights. It's a good finish. It's a good win. He's a good dude. It's been a good story. His return to the UFC, he's merited. He's earned an opportunity to go forward and face someone ahead of him in the rankings. Diego Lopez is quickly becoming one of my favorite fighters to watch. This was, I mean, look, anytime somebody's going to jump a triangle in the center of the octagon a minute in, I'm on board. He's now been in two wildly entertaining fights this year. Since arriving in the UFC, the finish against Gavin Tucker was both technical and precise, but also a little bit vicious. That arm was bent at a gnarly angle. And for Tucker to start and try to gut it out, and Lopez to just continue and finish and roll it into mount and get that submission. Beautiful performance. 28 years old. Looks like a star on the rise. Which is... So cool to see that it happens organically as well, right? Just a guy that nobody was expecting to suddenly get on board with and, and suddenly to have a bandwagon at this point of the year. But he very much does, and he's just outside the top 15 now. He's solidified his place in this division. He should get a big matchup going forward. And his 
instantly in the span of like three months, four months, a guy that we just, we have to pay attention to at 145. Not a lot for me to say about the Tanner Boser Alexa Kamer fight or the Ludovic Klein Ignacio Bahamundes fight. I just think the losing side of each of those fights showed their inexperience, their lack of growth, and for right now and maybe long term, their lack of upside. They are just limited as fighters and as athletes because it feels like when plan A doesn't work or isn't available, there just isn't a plan B. And when you're fighting at this level, that becomes difficult. Now, I know Bilal Muhammad tweeted out after the fight talking about Bahamundas and a bunch of people getting on the 25-year-old that he doesn't deserve the grief that he's getting. And I agree with that. Nobody should. I deactivated the comments on my interview that I posted up on Instagram with Jake Hadley because the minute that fight ended, I started getting notifications of comments talking, saying a bunch of ignorant, ignorant shit about Jake Hadley. So I just turned them off and I understand that Nacho was probably getting leveled with stuff and that Bilal is a hundred percent correct. He and any fighter does not deserve that from the masses. I will say though, that each of he and Kamer need to show improvements going forward. My question going into this about Bahamundas is, are we going to see that step forward. And so while it's great that he's three and two in the UFC at 25 years old and his story is wonderful, right? Having a great story doesn't preclude him from criticism in terms of his performance and in terms of his development. The story's wonderful. The performance on Saturday wasn't as good as anyone had expected. And it felt like it was the same as we saw throughout this run. And while it's great that he's here, now it's time to show that there's more to it. And there's there's the need for growth and development and improvement. We didn't see it from Alexa Kamer after a two-year layoff. Granted, dealing with injuries, dealing with different stuff. We didn't see it from Bahamundes. And we need to. That's what this sport is about. I mean, we saw in Corey Sanhagen, a guy that has fought for the interim bantamweight title, that he's gone to the lab and added wrestling and become a much better wrestler just in the last two years, while continuing to fight and face elite competition, right? Three straight wins now. Song Yudong, Marlon Vera, Rob Font, all top 10 opponents. So it is doable, not by everybody. And I'm not saying everyone should be the same, that everybody is on par with Corey Sandhagen in terms of aptitude, work ethic, ability, all of those things. But we know that development and improvement is possible. And each of those two young men need to show it going forward or else they're going to continue to struggle in the UFC. Kyler Phillips continues to be a challenging fighter for me to watch somebody that I think highly of, but just seems to have a lack of, not even a lack of a gas tank, but a limited gas tank. And when you're in there against the best fighters in the best division, in my opinion, in the UFC, that's going to be problematic. He looked great in the first round. He looked pretty good in the second round and he looked like he was holding on for dear life in the third. And so if I'm Kyler Phillips, whatever I've got to do to keep building that gas tank and keep improving my conditioning, those are the things I'm focusing the most on starting on Monday. Those are the things that I'm dedicating myself to. And if it's a situation where getting down to 35 is part of the problem, then maybe you need to not fight at 35. Now I understand going up to 45, you lose some of those competitive advantages. And this is where weight cutting is an absolute bastard. But like he started flagging in that fight and it didn't happen against Marcelo Royo, but it happened very hard against Howley and Piva in a fight that he lost. It happened in the fight against Song Yudong. And as he keeps trying to move forward, He's going to need that gas tank because a lot of the guys in front of him, the vast majority of the guys in front of him have no problem going 15 minutes at a hard clip and going 25 minutes at a good pace. And so if you want to get to that elite level, that gas tank, that conditioning, figuring out between the weight cut and the cardio and the S and C, 
are the things that are going to get you there. Because the skills and the talent and the IQ and the understanding and the coaching, those things are there. We saw that on Saturday. He looked very good in that opening round. Moves well. Good right hand. Good wrestling defense. We know he's a good grappler. Working with John Crouch and the crew at the lab. Good people behind him. It's that strength and conditioning. It's that gas tank. It's that cardio. If he doesn't correct that, this is about as far as Kyler Phillips, in my opinion, is going to go at bantamweight. All the stuff that I said throughout the week about Jeremiah Wells and not bringing him along slowly and giving him the opportunity, we could just transfer it to Carlston Harris. The two 36-year-olds went out. Wells won every second of the first two rounds, and Carlston Harris won the last 90 seconds of the fight and therefore got the victory and got the finish. Eric Nixick put it, put it a great way. And it's a, it's a phrase they use around the gym at extreme couture. It's that you can win the fight. You, I want to make sure I get this right. Basically he said, you look at that fight between Rafael Asensio and David Grant, right? Hoffa won the fight, but David Grant won the moment. And winning the moment can be the difference between actually winning the fight and losing the fight. And that's what happened with Harris and Jeremiah Wells. Wells won the fight for 10 of the 11 minutes, 10 of the 12 minutes. But Carlston Harris found that anaconda choke and put Jeremiah Wells out. And now at 4-1 and one in the UFC, where his one loss is to the undefeated phenom Shavkat Rachmanov, who we all think is in that championship mix or going to be there soon. It's time to just give him an opponent. It's time to just give him an opportunity because we don't need to. He's 36. We don't need to slow play this dude. He navigated some bad spots against Jeremiah Wells. He remained composed and he went out and found that finish. He needed a finish. He went out and got it. Give him an opportunity. I've got a name for you when I get to the matchmaking piece that I'm sure some people are going to balk at but it feels like the right kind of thing to do for Harris after a great win, second straight victory, four and one in the UFC. Everything I said about Jeremiah Wells flips to Harris. Now give him the opportunity, move him forward. Great performance. Anybody that signs up to face Billy Quarantillo, you better hope you get him out of there in the first five minutes. Cause if you don't, this dude is a goddamn zombie that is just going to keep coming. Great fight between Billy Q and Damon Jackson. Jackson started started hot and then wasn't able to maintain it. Billy Q started slow and then just starts ramping up. It was the fight that I expected from these two. It's the reason that I adore fighters like this and that I have such a great appreciation for these veteran ecosystem guys that live just outside of the top 15. They can be counted on for fun fights. They can be counted on for entertaining fights and tough challenges for emerging talents. I want to see each of them continue in this role, in this position. This is just a great fight. And Billy Q continuing to cement that you're going to have to kill me or else I'm going to keep coming kind of ethos that he exists by. And it's, it's great to see. It's fun to watch. Cody Durden is proving to be a, I don't know if he's, he's a legitimate contender yet, but he's a legitimate factor in the lower third of the top 15 at flyweight. Picked up his fourth straight win on Saturday, defeating Jake Hadley. Wrestled well uh, for two rounds. And then third round was kind of a battle of attrition. Both guys pretty tired. But listen, I talk about it all the time. You go out and put together four straight wins. It's hard to do in the UFC. Not a lot of folks running around with four straight victories or more in any division. And so... While it hasn't always looked good, while he lost last year to Mohamed Makayev, he's posted four straight victories. And Jake Hadley is a prospect that a lot of people were high on, myself included. And he went out and got the job done and did what he needed to do. This was a take the path of least resistance, go and get my victory, survive some dicey points, and get my win and keep moving forward. And he's moving forward. He should probably be ranked when the rankings update on on Monday or Tuesday. Four straight wins. That's got to get you something. In addition to probably getting him a number next to his name, it should get him a date with a fellow ranked opponent. Like he's now past all of the, you got to beat this tier of guys kind of tests and assignments. 
I mean, it's, it's brutal. Anytime he gets on the mic and he says some dumb shit, but performance wise, effort wise in the octagon, it's been pretty good. And you got to tip your cap to him. Sean Woodson feels like one of those fighters that I'm kind of similar to Kyler Phillips in a way. One of those fighters that I'm always going to be a little bit frustrated watching because I just always want it to be a little bit better. He felt like he had, and it felt pretty clear that he had an edge over Dennis Bazookia, who took the fight on super short notice and had never faced anybody near this level of competition. And so this isn't a knock on Bazookia, but Sean Woodson looked like he had this one wrapped, but it still kind of felt a little bit closer than it needed to be. And some of the decision-making wasn't necessarily great. His coaches are screaming at him not to go for takedowns and not to grapple. And he goes out and grapples and it just feels like a guy that has such incredible natural gifts. It's similar to Bahamundes. You have that range, you have that length, you have that size where you're exponentially bigger than everyone you're going to face. And yet there's a lot of times that you give it away and you're ineffective using it. And that's going to be problematic. I remember for years and years and years, we talked about, oh, Stefan Struve, if he just learns to jab and use that incredible, if you haven't figured it out by this point. And and for Bahamundes, he's 25, so fine. We'll give him a, a couple more years. But like Sean Woodson's 31. He's been this tall for a number of years, his whole fighting career. If you haven't figured out how to use that jab and use those long kicks to just keep dudes off of you and not put yourself in positions where you can maybe get hit, I don't know that it's coming. He's done well overall in the UFC. This victory, even though it is against a short-notice opponent, still merits a step forward and a step up in competition. But he just feels like another one of those guys that I'm perpetually going to be here on a Sunday morning talking about, man, I just want to see more. In the opener, Asu Almabayev beating Ode Osborne. This is just a good performance, right? This is just a, a clean debut effort that makes me highlight Almabayev as somebody... I absolutely need to pay attention to going forward for the second time in three weeks. We get a debuting Kazakh fighter, go out and get a victory. Um, Azat Maxim got a win a couple weeks ago against Tyson Nam. Now we get Almabayev. Flyweight is getting better. That's the takeaway here. Flyweight is getting deep. We are getting more fighters in the division, more complete fighters, more dynamic fighters. It's getting real interesting. Things at the top are starting to get settled, right? We've gone through the quadrology. We've gone through Moreno Pantoja. We've got a new champion who hasn't faced everybody in the division as some of these divisions have right now. And we've got a bunch of promising new talent rising through the ranks. 125 is always entertaining in the cage. It's starting to get and going to continue to get entertaining in terms of the matchmaking in terms of figuring out next in terms of looking at the long range future for this division it's just going to keep getting better and that should be really exciting to everybody now brings us to the matchmaking portion of the program and as we did last week we will work our way from the opening bout of the night all the way up to the main event so we'll build some some drama as we get towards these bigger name fights and these bigger name opportunities that I that I hope materialize going forward. So for Asu Amabayev coming off the debut win over Ode Osborne, I like a fight with Alessandro Costa. Nono came out last time, got his first UFC win, great performance, held his own for two rounds in a little bit against Amir Albazi in his short notice debut. It's essentially guys coming off of their first victories in the UFC meeting at an early stage where we just see which one moves forward now. I'm not always the advocate for this, but in a division like flyweight where it makes sense to get moving some people forward because we have some stalwart names in the top 15, let's do it now so that whoever catches a loss has plenty of time to reset and get moving forward again. So give me Almabaya versus Costa somewhere before the year is out. For Sean Woodson, I like the idea of a fight with Jack Shore. It's a really interesting matchup because Shore is at his best when he is grappling. Sean Woodson is a very, very difficult fighter 
to grapple with. He will have that significant edge in terms of height and reach and length. And it becomes that clash of styles of who's able to really impose their will and dictate the terms of engagement here to keep moving forward in this division. Both are only beaten once in the UFC. Each has only suffered one defeat in the UFC. That's a much cleaner, easier way of saying that. Jack Schwartz coming off a good win over Makwan Armarkani in London in March. Woodson obviously coming off the win over Dennis Bazookia. Let It feels like a it's a slight step back for, for Jack Shore, admittedly in terms of position and name value in the rankings going from, from Amar Khani to Woodson. But everybody in that top 15 and, and that lower third, especially the Jack Shore would be looking at just got booked last week. Literally everybody in that bottom, bottom five of the top 15 got booked last week. And so if you want to get one more in before the end of the year, Sean Woodson talked about, I want to fight every four or five months. We can do this in December. Makes sense. Winner gets to move forward and and likely face an opponent in that lower third of the top 15. So let's get them each moving forward. For Cody Durden, what about a fight with Steve Urseg? So Urseg came out here to Vancouver at UFC 189, 289, excuse me, on short notice. 189 was a fantastic fight card, if you'll remember. And defeated David Dvorak in his short notice debut. Pushed him into the top 10 right away. I think Durden has done enough now with four consecutive victories and a good win over Jake Hadley on Saturday to merit an opportunity against the top 10 opponent. Urseg is yet to be matched up. I don't know if we're going to get an announcement here for Sydney, which takes place in five weeks time. That feels a little bit short to get him in there after a short notice debut. And there was, there was another weight cut in there as well. I believe as he was trying to fight a couple weeks before that. And so maybe somewhere later in the year, Ursig makes the trip over. We get Astro Boy back in the cage. Durden gets a chance against the top 10 guy. Ursig gets a chance against the guy that's put together a nice little winning streak, defend his spot in the rankings, and get himself continuing to move forward potentially if he grabs another victory. For Billy Q, what about a fight with Nathaniel Wood? So a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now, after the London show, I posited the idea of Sadiq Yusuf facing Nathaniel Wood. And as I just said, all of those dudes in the lower third of the top 15 at Featherweight just got booked up, including Sadiq Yusuf. So that puts Nathaniel Wood back on the matchmaking table for me. And I think this is a good, that would be a good fight. Because as we talked about earlier, Quarantillo is a guy that isn't going to go away, is going to fight you hard for every single second of every single round that they're in there together. Nathaniel Wood is coming off a good victory but not a great performance. Last time out against Andre Feely, he got clipped a couple times. It was a really competitive, quality fight against a veteran outside of that top 15. For right now, that's where Wood continues to reside. And so the timeline sort of match, right? They fought right around within a month of each other. It's the right matchup for Wood. It's the right kind of fight that Billy Quarantillo should be looking at after a win like this, get him in there with someone younger, someone else that's ascending and moving forward. And so I think it could be a hell of a fight. If you want to hold that over until next March, when they go to London, everybody's healthy, everybody's whatever. Great. I would love to see it before then, but it feels like the right kind of matchup to me. So with Carlston Harris, as I said, I had an, I have a name that a lot of people are probably going to bristle at, but it's Sean Brady. So multitude of reasons here for me. First and foremost, Sean Brady is a teammate and training partner of Jeremiah Wells. So you get an automatic tie-in of vengeance, get one back for my guy, all of that stuff. Everybody likes that kind of story. Additionally, Sean Brady is ranked. He's currently stationed in the top 15. He's coming off a loss to Bilal Muhammad last October in Abu Dhabi. And he's been forced out of a pair of fights already this year. And so... To me, it feels like Sean Brady needs a bit of a reset. It feels like Sean Brady needs a matchup that not necessarily feels a little more favorable, but is going to tell us what we got with this guy. Because going into the fight with Bilal Muhammad, we were all on board. He was the undefeated up-and-coming fighter in this division, and the expectation was that he was going to go out and beat Bilal Muhammad. And 
very early in that second round, it was clear that Sean Brady didn't have it that night and wasn't going to beat Bilal Muhammad any night for that matter or, or so far. And so now that we are approaching a year away, and I think we're going to get to a full year away because Sean Brady was dealing with some elbow issues, staph infection in his elbow that pulled him from his last matchup. Let's get him in there with Harris. Harris has done enough now. As he said, at 4-1 and one in the UFC, the only losses to Shavkat, who is in the top five in the welterweight division now. Let's get them in there because we, we just, not only do we need to see and find out what the ceiling is for Harris at this point at 35, where there's no need to sort of work him through another fighter just outside the top 15 and then somebody in the lower third and then maybe somebody in the top 10. Let's just get him in there and see. And then for Brady, he's kind of stuck in that position of you got to just take whatever's out there and maybe you need to go out and get a reset. Maybe you need to go out and make the decision to fight somebody out of the rankings in order to get your hand raised and get yourself moving forward again. Because for a guy that was, as I said earlier, kind of one of those everybody's darlings, and understandably, right? He was undefeated prior to that fight with Bilal Muhammad to now not only be coming off the loss, but coming off a long layoff, 30 years old, a little bit undersized in terms of height for the division, to be coming off that long layoff, to have been pulled from fights with Michelle Pejea and Jack Della Maddalena already this year. Maybe let's get a reset. Maybe let's face somebody outside of that top 15. Harris makes a lot of sense. As I said, the vengeance for a teammate angle and just the guy that's four and one and has proven that he's pretty close to that top 15. Feels like a good fight to me. Feels like an interesting matchup to me. I would love to see something like that. For Kyler Phillips, this one feels simple. Just reset it with Saeed Nurmagomedov. That's who he was supposed to face on Saturday. Nurmagomedov was hurt, forced to withdraw. Barcelo stepped in. Phillips gets the victory. Just re-rack the fight with Saeed. He's a guy that is going to push him, that he's going to need to have that gas tank figured out. He's going to need to show the takedown defense, the wrestling defense, the ability to go out there and strike with a guy that'll throw wild spinning stuff. Just feels like an easy solution for two fighters that are in that 11 through 20 range in the bantamweight division. As we shift to the main card, Ludovic Klein got his win over Ignacio Bahamundes. I like a matchup with Joe Selecki. So Selecki is one of these guys to me coming off the contender series. He's five and one in the UFC, but there's not really a lot of memorable victories. The losses to Jared Gordon. He's done well against overmatched opposition and he just needs to face somebody that's in that same cohort. And Klein feels there. He is 3-0-1 in four fights at lightweight. This was a good win on Saturday over Baja Mendez. They're both sort of in that, probably the back end of the second 15, probably in that 25 to 30 range. So let's pair them off and see which one moves forward. Lightweight is loaded with talent, so it's okay at these stages to take these athletes that are on parallel lines, have them cross, and just send one forward. So Klein versus Selecki feels like a good matchup to me. As for Tanner Boser, we have a fight coming up between Tyson Pedro and Anton Turkali at UFC 293 in Sydney next month. The winner of that faces Tanner Boser, and the winner of that can continue moving forward in the light heavyweight division. I think Boser has some upside in this division because he is a big, good athlete, moves well. We saw some of the quickness. We saw some of the durability. Picks his shots well, can be clean and technical. I don't necessarily know that it's a make a run into the top 15 or the top 10, I should say, because I think he can make a run into the top 15. But after beating Kamer, get him in there with somebody like Tyson Pedro or Anton Turkali, whoever gets that victory. Somebody else that is just still getting reset and getting moving forward in the division and figure it out from there. For Diego Lopez, what about a fight with Jonathan Pierce? So JSP is on a five-fight winning streak since returning to featherweight. 
Last victory was last December against Darren Elkins in a fight that he absolutely dominated and should have been stopped sooner than it was. It went the distance. It should have been stopped. He was scheduled to face Bryce Mitchell at UFC 288. He was forced to withdraw because of an injury. He is, he's now kind of lost a little bit of momentum, right? And that sucks to say, because he had a very good year last year, earning three victories. As I said, five and zero at bantamweight. It's three finishes and two decisions. The win over Elkins was dominant. He's a guy that was, was making headway that was making progress that had some momentum and being forced out of the fight with Mitchell kind of screwed some of that up. And so now he's kind of got a reset. And for someone like Lopez, who's coming off a terrific performance on Saturday and looked great against Movstar Ivloyev, who is ranked in the top 15, this feels like the kind of fight that makes sense. It's a little bit similar to me to what I was talking about with Sean Brady for, for JSP in that you've now been out, you know, nine months, 10 months, everybody in that lower third is booked and you're sort of stuck and you're sort of the guy that needs to reset and that needs a, Oh, y'all forgot about me kind of fight. Diego Lopez is the guy to bring that out of you. Now, I don't know if Jonathan Pierce can be ready for when the UFC presumably returns to Brazil There's a fight card that they haven't confirmed yet that it's going to be in Sao Paulo, but that's where everybody assumes it will be. Diego Lopez asked to be on that card because he hasn't fought at home in his native Brazil in a number of years. I don't know if Jonathan Pierce can be ready for that. If he can, great. If not, do it later in the year. Do it early next year. It feels like the right matchup. The winner then faces a top 15 opponent if somebody is available, obviously. And we find out a little bit more about each of these guys who are entertaining, interesting fighters in a competitive division where we still need a few new names to move forward. For Dustin Jacoby, he asked to fight forward in the division. I oblige Alonzo Menefield. Menefield got a win over Jimmy Crute a few weeks back to settle that one after the two battled to a draw earlier in the year. He is one spot ahead of Jacoby in the rankings as of right now. They're both veteran guys. They're both in their mid-30s. They both have big power. Let's just get him in there and the winner goes forward. To me, this is really simple. This is really easy. You look at the top 15. You look at where they are. Dustin Jacoby has already faced Khalil Roundtree, who fights this week coming up against Chris Dawkins. Dominic Reyes doesn't seem to be competing. He's already faced Azamat Mirzakhanov and lost to him. Ryan Spann is facing his teammate, Anthony Smith, in a couple weeks' time. Volkan Ozdemir has a fight. And then we're getting into seven and above, and that's just too too much of a stretch for Dustin Jacoby at this point. And so Menafield is right beside him in the rankings. He's, he's in need of an opponent. Jacoby's in need of an opponent. Feels like automatic fireworks. Book it as a main card fight, similar to this one with Kennedy and Zechiku. And away we go. In terms of Tatiana Suarez, I bring her to Boston. I have her front row for the championship fight between Zhang Weili and Amanda Lemos. And Tatiana Suarez faces the winner. I don't care if we do the in the cage face off. Let's let's start getting it going because those are usually terrible. And sometimes they amount to nothing, Daniel Cormier and Brock Lesnar. And so I don't care about the theatrics of it. But matchup-wise, results-wise, performance-wise, Tatiana Suarez has earned a championship opportunity. Undefeated in the UFC, seven straight victories to start a career, tying Joanna Janjacek for the most consecutive victories to start a career of any female fighter in UFC history, dominated Jessica Andrade on Saturday, presents some interesting challenges for everyone in the division. The The grappling and the submission wrestling game is on point. The striking continues to get better. I want to see her against one of these elite talents. And whoever comes away with that belt, make no mistake about it, is an elite talent. They both are. And so get her in there with the winner. Do it early next year. And let's just see what happens. This division needs new blood fighting for the title. We've spent a lot of years with the same names, trading the belt back and forth and going through this dynamic of of the same fighters facing off against each other. 
We're starting to get a change with Lemos getting an opportunity in Boston in two weeks' time. Let's continue that with Tati getting an opportunity against the winner somewhere down the line. Lastly, the main event, Corey Sanhagen, picking up that third straight win, third straight top 10 victory. I'm not going to sit here and advocate for a championship opportunity right away, necessarily. So here's what I mean. I think we could have a situation where if Aljamain Sterling retains his title in Boston, he decides that he's going up to featherweight, ideally in theory to challenge for the featherweight title right away. In that situation, I think it will play out very similarly to when Alexander Volkanovsky went up and challenged for the lightweight title earlier this year at UFC 284, where he goes up as the champion and we introduce an interim title fight. And if we do that, I would like to see Corey Sanhagen and Marab Dwalishvili fight for that interim title. And I know there will be people that say, hey, Sean O'Malley just fought for the title. Why isn't he in the mix? Because he just fought for the title. He just had his opportunity to get gold. It didn't work out. Go back and win a fight. Go back and move move backwards. Corey Sanhagen's on a three-fight winning streak. Marab is on an incredible run. They feel like a good matchup. It feels like an interesting clash of styles to me in terms of Marab the Machine as a wrestler. Corey Sanhagen showing his wrestling ability on Saturday, but we know him as a dynamic striker with great footwork and movement and somebody that will time some of those takedown takedown entries. And so if that's how it plays out, then I think you could do that for an interim title. If Sean O'Malley wins, regardless of what Sterling is going to do there, I think it's still, I shouldn't say regardless of what Sterling is going to do there. Because I'd be interested to see if Aljo wants to stick around and run it back with Sean O'Malley if he drops the belt. I think he has done enough to merit that opportunity as he now has the record for the most consecutive successful title defenses at bantamweight. And he's he's doing this fight on a relatively quick turnaround after facing Henry Cejudo, and he's beaten a bunch of former champions. And so he has the, the clout in terms of resume and experience and pedigree to earn that, to merit that immediate rematch. I don't necessarily know if the UFC would want to do it. And so if O'Malley wins, then things become a little more complicated for Corey Sandhagen. I think you could absolutely hustle him into a fight with Sean O'Malley, but Marab Dwalajvili is right there. And so it's going to be a little bit of a wait and see for Corey Sandhagen because if O'Malley wins and Sterling is going up, then I think Marab moves in there and Corey Sandhagen is left kind of hanging out for a minute. He's le- left waiting to see what Henry Cejudo is doing. He's left waiting to see what happens with some of these other guys in the division. He could very well end up getting stuck back in with Umar Nurmagomedov, who he's, he was supposed to face on Saturday. I like the idea of an interim title fight between Sanhagen and Marab, but everything hinges on UFC 292 in Boston in two weeks' time. That's it for the program. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, for consuming my work here on the Keyboard Kimura Substack platform. Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Going to post there a little less these days. I'm not going to be active during fight nights anymore because it's just getting tiresome to me. But I will continue to post all of my content on both of those platforms. Please check out my guys at One Bone, at One Bone Brand on Twitter and Instagram onebonebrand.com for all your apparel needs ESK20 at checkout for 20% off your order sign up for the substack spencerkite.substack.com $0 subscription $5 a month 50 bucks for the year goes to contributing to continue improving this newsletter and the work that I put out here as well as funding some of the gear and the equipment and things of that nature I greatly appreciate however you choose to sign up Please have a good week. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Know that you are loved. Know that you're appreciated. Know that you matter to me. Have yourselves a great week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you tomorrow.